Welcome to the American Countryside Podcast. I'm Andrew McRae, host of the daily syndicated show for over two decades. Heard on over 100 radio stations and XM Channel 147. I go on location to meet the people and places that tell the fascinating stories of past and present. And the American Countryside Podcast allows you to hear the full interview with our guests. On this edition of the show, we explore the world of the Paniolo. You may ask, what is a Paniolo? As you'll hear in a moment, it was the title given to the first cowboys on the Hawaiian Islands. But how did the first cattle get here, and how did the islands become home to some of the largest ranches in the country and the world? Robbie Hind is my guest. He was perhaps the biggest Paniolo of all, the manager of the Parker Ranch that spanned over 200,000 acres. We sat down to visit in the town of Waimea, on the Big Island, the place that is headquarters for the Parker Ranch. I'm fifth generation here in Hawaii. My, the original Hind came from England in the mid-1800s. I'm basically a cowboy. I've raised cattle all my life and uh, been part of uh, the the Paniolo culture here in Hawaii for um, for all my life. Talk about that word for just a second, because a lot of mainland people won't even know what that is. Well, Paniolo, in the 1820s, uh, cattle had been introduced uh, in the late 1700s, 1793, I think the first cattle arrived in Hawaii. And the king at the time, King Kamehameha I, um, put a kapu on them or a tabu. You couldn't, uh, you couldn't hurt them. And so the population in that 30-year period uh, was, got, it was starting to overrun the population, their tarot patches and everything. And the king at the time, King Kamehameha III, said, we have to do something. And he sent for some California uh, Spanish vaqueros to come out and teach the Hawaiians um, how to handle these critters. And so they were the first folks to come out here. And they were called Spaniards, but the Hawaiians pronounced it a little differently, and it came out paniolo. And so that's where we get the word paniolo. Your family then is back five generations. When they came here, though, they came with sugar before they got over to the cattle. Is that right? That's correct. My my great-great-grandfather came out from England, and um, he built sugar mills. And uh, it was it was the happening thing then. And um, he started on Maui and built a bunch on Maui, the island of Maui, and then came to the big island and built some in North Kohala, with the north part of this island, and um, realized, hey, I can do this for myself, and ended up um, acquiring some land and... Um, Becoming a, a sh- one of the sugar, the sugar folks. So, your great grandfather then though got into the livestock. Is that right? Yeah, my great grandfather Robert Hind. Uh, you know, I just the name kept carrying down. I received five generations of the same name, but he uh, he was in charge of all the mules and stuff that they used to haul the cane and whatnot and work the fields. And in eighteen ninety three. He said, you know, I've had enough of this. I want to branch out and do something on my own. So he uh, went and uh, leased some property from uh, the government at the time and um, started Puva'ava'a Ranch. And that's where I get my cowboy roots from, is from him starting uh, that cattle operation there in Puva'ava'a. You mentioned leasing the land. As we go back that far, how were they handling land or even today is you know in the mainland we we buy a property but here how did that work over time prior to 1847 no foreigners could own land here and so it was a it was a kingdom of hawaii anything prior to that would have to be 
uh, done through the government at the time. In 1893, he leased property from the, the territory of Hawaii at the time. It was the Republic of Hawaii, but it, was, it wasn't a state at the time. He had a partner. They leased 100,000 acres at the time and started a ranch called Puawa Ranch. They eventually bought fee simple land on a portion of it, but the majority, and that was about 1,200 acres, but the majority of the ranch was a lease and always was from the, from the government. People can't see this since it's radio. You kind of talk about the, the, the grazing land here, you will, and the stocking rates and so forth. This isn't like you're going to find about anywhere else. <laughs> yeah. Um, of course, we're, we're a volcano, right? We, we're grazing on a volcano. On the island of Hawaii, which we're talking about, there's so many different types of terrain on this island. I mean, we've got the older part of the island that was the older volcanoes, and that land is turned into more dirt kind of country, so better country for, for agriculture. Then you get to the south part of the island, and that's where the new volcanoes are and the more active ones and basically active today. And they're spreading lava, you know, every once in a while. And so you'd, you have a real cross-section of, of land. And down where my great-grandfather leased was a lot of lava. And so it was rough country. It took a lot more effort because in those days there was you know, no water system. They had to develop their own water. And um, cattle had to be hardy because... Um, you know, most of it was lava that they grazed on. And, um, but in those, in those days, they brought in grasses. They planted grass, and they um, tried to improve the, the land as much as they could. I remember when, um, later on, um, when I was a kid, how these bulldozers would drag big anchor chains between them and uh, smash the lava with the anchor chains and make it smoother so that, you know, horses and cattle could, could run on it. Otherwise, it was, it was tough. And, um, you know, talking about horses, the first horse arrived here, by the way, in 18, 1803. The horses, you could not bring a, a horse from the mainland, at least in South Kona or where our ranch was at the time, and expect it to be, be at all uh, productive because... Um, it would not know how to go over the lava. But if it was raised there, it knew how to get along with the lava, and um, you could have a working horse. But you bring something else from the mainland, and the poor thing wouldn't last very long. I, I wanted to get into that because we use horses on our, our farm. But how do you—this terrain, I, I, there's places where I don't see how you get a horse over it, and, and how, do you, how do they learn <laughs> to get over it? Well— and I'll go back to when they were first brought here. You remember the cattle were brought in 1793 as a gift to the king. And um, George Vancouver, he was a British captain, and brought the first, first cattle here. And the king was so impressed, this is King Kamehameha I, that he created a 400-acre paddock with rock walls. And um, that's where these cattle were kept, and they were protected. The first horses came... Ten years later, in 1803, and he protected them also, and they, they uh, multiplied. And so you've got the cattle multiplying in one area and the horses multiplying. And then, as I mentioned earlier, King Kamehameha III in 1823 or tw- mid-1820s mid um, said, we have to do something, because at that point, the 
there were something like 20,000 head of cattle, and uh, they were running rampant all over the, the countryside, and they needed control. And so he sent for those Mexican vaqueros to come over and, um, the Spanish vaqueros, come over and um, teach the Hawaiians basically um, how to raise uh, cattle. And that, that thing, by bringing over those Spanish uh, vaqueros, it started a culture here. It started the, the Hawaiian cattle culture, Paniolo culture, and it's, it's got a great history to it. The cattle, um, there were no fences in those days, only rock walls. You know, they had a lot of rocks to deal <laughs> to make fences with. So they would build, they would fence off, you know, areas that they didn't want the cattle to be in. They would fence the cattle out. It was a different concept, right? Mm-hmm. So after the vaqueros got here, then they started fencing cattle in versus out. But yeah, that was the start of cattle being raised. When John Palmer Parker, you know, started the Parker Ranch, his family was in the shipping business back east, New England. You know, during the early 1800s, when all this stuff was going on, he was 19 years old and went on a trip because there was a lot of trade being done between um, Hawaii and um, Asia. And a lot of it was sandalwood. I mean, there was tons of sandalwood that was raised, you know, grew up on these mountains here in Hawaii. And the Chinese loved the sandalwood for lining their chests and all kinds of stuff because it had a good, good smell to it. And so it was a real commodity. And the ships would come to Hawaii and to resupply load sandalwood, and then go trade with China, and then come back and back and forth. And John Palmer Parker, the first, saw Hawaii, came right here to this Kauai Hai, the harbor, and uh, resupplied, got some sandalwood, went to China, and was stuck there. There was some revolution going on and was stuck there for a couple of years. And when he came back through Hawaii on the way home, he jumped off, jumped ship, and um, they sailed home without him. And so he's, what, 20 years old, young guy, and um, here on the island of Hawaii in 1817 or whenever it was, it was early on, 1816, 1817, not a lot of white folks lived here. It was mostly Hawaiians. And um, he made friends with the king and his, and the ali'i, and they were kind of, they thought he was quite a, a novelty, you know. <laughs> and... Uh, and he eventually married the king's granddaughter, which helped him. And um, the king hired, he, he had a musket. He, he had brought a musket and some stuff. And he started hunting the wild cattle and supplying ships with salt beef. That was his main job for the king. And the king liked it because he was getting some revenue. And, and so that's how Parker got involved in the cattle business. But at the start, it was strictly a harvesting situation. And so King Kamehameha the first died in 1819, and so uh, of course um, John Par- you know Parker was already here. And when he married the king's granddaughter, he got a, a small plot of land up. Um, it's called Mana is the area, and it's that's the name of the homestead. And built his home up there and raised his family. He started raising his family, and of course um, in the mid 1820s is when the vaqueros came over, and he was part of that whole thing, you know, showing them where to go and what to do. And eventually, um, 
1847, he acquired, he started raising cattle, but it was all in royal land, right? But in 1847, when um, they passed the law that said, you know, non-Hawaiians could own land, that's when he started expanding his, his operation. And of course, when he passed away, his son John II took over and eventually the Parker Ranch ended up being 400,000 acres. At that time, what were they doing with all that livestock? Just supplying the ships and supplying, supplying native the people then? Yep, um, supplying uh, the ships and um, the hides. They would sell the hides. So basically it was for the meat and for the hides, but nothing organized. It was more of a harvesting kind of a thing. Eventually, Park Ranch brought in better genetics. They'd bring in Hereford bulls from England, and they had the biggest biggest Hereford herd in the world in the 20s, 1920s and whatnot. So, and this would be in the, the 20s, you know, 1920s. Uh, and remember there was a war that came, and um, Park Ranch played a big role in um, after Pearl Harbor was born, uh, bombed in uh, the early 40s. And um, there were, I can't remember how many Marines that were stationed here on the ranch. It was, gosh, I think it was something like 20,000 Marines were stationed here gearing up for Iwo Jima when they did that battle. The ranch would kill so many head a week to supply, you know, the, the needs for the, the military. Anyway, a lot of history here. Right, right. Um, so you're going to have a connection with the Parker Ranch. Tell me how that develops, because your family had a ranch, but you're going to end up working for the Parker Ranch for several years. Remember, they, my family sold Puawa Ranch, and um, I was raised at South in South Kona at a portion of that ranch that my dad managed. But my dad got a job at a ranch in South Kona called McCandless Ranch, and manage that for those folks. And um, that's where I was basically raised and learned all my cowboying and everything at that branch. So I've, I went to college on the mainland, uh, majored in business, and um, would come back in summers and cowboy during the summers or work construction, either one. Eventually, I graduated from college, came home, and started a real estate company and hated it. I would tell the people all the thing that was wrong with the property and didn't do a good job selling. So the, my partner said, Rob, you know, why don't you go back to ranching <laughs> and uh, I'll take this over from now. So that's where I went. And uh, I went back to McCandless where I was raised and became a cowboy. And eventually I worked my way up and became the manager of McCandless Ranch. And um, out of the blue... I got a call from the business manager at Parker Ranch, and I'd known him a little bit, but not not well. And he said, Robbie, would you be interested in working for us? And I said, in what capacity? And he said, um, as livestock manager. And I told him, I said, sure. In the meantime, I called my dad. I said, Dad, <laughs> um, Parker Ranch just called, and I said, I want to I wanted to get your opinion on this because they had gone through a number of managers prior to that phone call and managers lasted about two to three years and then they would change and get a new group in. And, you know, I, I just had a little two-year-old daughter and my wife was pregnant with our second child. And uh, I said, you know, I don't want to, 
I'm very comfortable here. I'm, you know, we're, it's challenging. It's a great job. But, you know, and my dad goes, are you crazy? <laughs> he goes, you take that job. I don't care if you last one week. He said, it's going to be an experience. And so I said, okay. So in December of 1984, I started at Parker Ranch. You were head of all livestock operations there then? Yeah, I walked. I went from a herd of 1,500 cows and eight employees to 20,000 cows and 75 employees. Bingo. <laughs> but you know one of the greatest things was I, I didn't know anybody on the ranch. I mean, I knew a few of the cowboys and had, you know, roped in rodeos and things with them, but I didn't know any of the politics or anything that went on. And so it's probably the best thing for me because when I got here, I could look at things very objectively and go, why are we doing it this way? About how many acres was it at that time then? Uh, it was uh, 220,000, about 220,000 acres. And so then what could you stock that at, or did it vary a lot by it where? Varied. Okay. It really varied. In fact, we had two different breeding seasons because of our seat. We had two seasons. So we had a spring calving and a, and a fall calving deal. In the best country, we could raise one animal unit per acre. I'm very productive. Mm -hmm. And then you had areas that were 1 to 10, 1 to 15 per acre, which compared to New Mexico or something, <laughs> that's still really good. Yeah, no, it is. But, but it's just, it was just that, you know, it was a real difference in what you could raise and where you raised it. So wh what about feed out here? Is it totally grass or what, what else do you have? Because there's not a lot of <laughs> corn growing out here on the islands. Um, during Mr. Carter's time, A.W. Carter in the 20s, 30s, and 40s, they raised a lot of corn on Parker Ranch. It was all dryland farming, and it was done up in, um, it's an area called Waikiki, which is up on the side of Mauna Kea. And they produced corn, and today you'll still see the corn silos that they have, and corn cribs, and they'd all buy wagon and, and horse, and they'd haul the corn to various divisions and feed their cattle, or they had pigs, they raised pigs and turkeys and all kinds of stuff so yeah we did raise some corn actually dryland farming and uh but basically it was grass it was grass and different seasons uh different areas where the grass would grow you know better it's one season when we had rain and stuff so it gave you a lot of flexibility you know on that but were you moving those cattle quite a bit then to follow the grass yeah or we'd we'd would make sure that they were not raising a calf when it was dry in that mm -hmm. that area, and so and they'd be wanting to raise calves and be breeding back when they had their rains and stuff. So it just depended on where. And if some place got in trouble one year, then we'd we'd shift cattle and whatnot. The biggest thing was Mr. Carter developed it was water system. Without water, you're not going to raise a lot of cattle. And uh, in the wetter side of the ranch, you had springs and and streams that would run mostly year-round, but most of the ranch is, you know, no streams or water. So what they do is they make reservoirs um, at the bottom of some drainages, and when you have a big event, reservoirs would fill up, and um, you'd have water for a while. Well, when the water got run, you'd have to move your cattle to where there'd be water. So that was a real, and that's, that's before my time, of course. But then Mr. Carter came, and he developed a system where we, we collect water up in the Kohala Mountains, which is 
you know, a real rain. We got 80 inches of rain a year up there or more. And um, he made some well, waterheads and ran a, ran a pipeline all the way across the valley here to Mauna, Mauna Kea. And then we had a pump system that lifted water up to 7,000 feet and then gravity, you know, the whole thing. Huh. And so You talked about the genetics a century ago were Herefords. So what genetics did you have when you were there? What grows well on the island? Okay. When I first got to Park Ranch, they were trying a four-way cross. And there was the Herefords, of course, which was the majority of the ranch. They had Brangus, they had Angus, and they had Shorthorn. This was a, a four-way cross developed by a guy named Ensminger, and he's a, he was a professor. I, I can't remember what university, University of Washington, Washington State or something. Anyway, and they were following this. They wanted to, because of the hybrid vigor and everything you get out of the crossbreeding, right? Crossbreeding was a, the big thing then. So eventually, I worked to get a Angus herd, so all our cows were black, and in the Angus breed, I was able to find genetics that were so separate. I mean, it's such a huge genetic pool that you could get genetics from one side and genetics from the other side and get some hybrid vigor out of that. And so today, um, they still are doing the same thing. They've got, it's an Angus herd based, um, but the only thing is, when we were shipping cattle to Canada feed, the Canadians loved the um, Charley crosses. And so I said, okay, let's take our older cows, who are bigger framed and whatnot, and we'll breed Charley bulls, bulls to them, and all their calves would go to market. We don't keep any females because they'd be too big for our country. That's when we were shipping a lot of cattle to Canada, and they loved them as feeders. You know, those Angus Charley crosses, were they feed really well, and we made good money on them. And so today they're doing the same thing. The cattle then that are raised here on the islands, whether it's Parker or other ranches today, are any fed out here or does everything go to the mainland? And if they do, then what weight are you sending them? And most go to Canada or West Coast uh, in the States or where? Okay. And remember, I'm just talking about Parker because that was more my niche of the, the thing. But remember, there were a lot of ranches in Hawaii. I mean, there were big ranches, you know, 1,500 cow herd, nothing compared to Parker, but you know, there was a lot of ranching going on in the, when I was growing up, uh, you know, in the 50s, 60s. Okay, in the 50s, and this was, this was after the war, the continental U.S. had a lot of corn, and they wanted to, you know, add value to it. So they started running it through cattle. And the same thing happened here, except up there, they built the feedlots near the corn. Over here, we're 2,500 miles away from the coast, not to mention the Midwest. So we ended up opening a feed yard to take care of Park Ranch cattle as well as other producers. And uh, it, uh, but we had to import all the grain, so our cost was higher. But our product was fresh, and the supermarkets liked it and all the markets. And so... We got, to, and, and at the time, we had a packing plant there in Honolulu. This was all on, on Oahu, on that island, where the popula population was. And we'd ship our calves to Honolulu, put them in the feed yard, finish them. They'd be processed there, and then carcasses would be delivered to these markets, and they'd break them down and market them. And it worked, and this was 1950. Well, when I arrived in 1984, 
and this this is industry wide, right? I mean, everybody fed their cattle. Everything stayed in Hawaii. But what happened? Cryovac packaging and um, fabricating box beef came into play. All of a sudden, the supermarkets said, "Wait, we can get a cryovac steak without being frozen from the mainland here and have 60 days shelf life." So we want you guys to fabricate the carcass. We don't want to do that anymore. So all of a sudden, we looked at you know shipping, and there were there were cattle boats all over the world. These ships that ship cattle, sheep everywhere, all over the world. So they're there. So I've called, <laughs> I called uh, this one company, Corral Line, original, right, D- Danish flag vessel. And talked to them, and I said, can you ship cattle from Hawaii to the mainland, you know, continental U.S.? And they said, sure, we can do that. And we went to a board meeting at Hawaii Meat Company, which was the that side of the business, right? And I remember <laughs> him standing there and saying, we have a plan that we're going to try. And he explained it to him. We're going to send 4,000 steers to Canada, and we're going to run them through a process, uh, you know, the whole process there, and we're going to get results. So that's what happened, and the ship arrived at Kwaihai down here. <laughs> we loaded 4,000, well, it was two trips. They, they did a 2,000 and 2,000 and sent them all up there, and uh, we had a veterinarian on board to make sure the animal, you know, check, make sure their health, and we hired a a Canadian company uh, out of the University of British Columbia to do a study for us. So they had a guy ride by them and, you know, take all the data, went to the mainland. We sent them in April. They got up there, um, went out to pasture, stayed there until October, and then went to the feed yards, and they were, you know, they're dead uh, at the end of the year, first first year. And we made more money on those cattle than we had been making on you know, keeping them here. And that was the light bing went on. And so after that, we, this was in the 90s, we, um, we shipped 10,000 10, head a year for, we still kept some, but eventually the packing plant closed down. And today, all cattle on Hawaii, basically, are there any little locker plants that you can slaughter something here if you want? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, but your cows and bulls were still here. And um, and uh, today, you know, grass fan animals are real, you know, it's a trendy thing, right? And so a lot of our production on, uh, you know, with ranches, not only Parker, are staying here and marking locally as grass fan animals, which is good. You know, it's our carbon footprint or hoof print, I should say, <laughs> was huge when we'd send them to the mainland, bring them back as a steak. I mean... You know, not not real good. But today, I would a lot of cattle stay back in Hawaii, and um, and are used, you know, uh, grass fat animals. Right. And remember, we only produce, I think it's six percent of the beef consumed in Hawaii. I think Hawaii ranchers produce about six percent. There's a huge market here. Uh, well, I was wanted to wind up with a couple questions like this with the. The Hawaii cattlemen, mm-hmm. how do you see the market here? Because it is certainly different than almost any other state. Is the market for 
raising grass-fed beef in Hawaii? Is that what the consumer wants here? And is there a market for that? Or how do ranchers here look at it? It's a niche market, and um, I think it's popular today because it's you know it's you know we're not you know feeding corn to cattle has never been real looked at as a as a good use of of uh, food, uh, corn, um, but uh, the majority of people are still buying choice cattle from Costco and all over, and so I think. If if we can build that grass-fed market, that's great. And if we end up keeping everything that's produced in Hawaii here to fill a grass-fed market, that would be wonderful. But if we can't, we're still going to have to ship some cattle away. And, of course, you know, cows and bulls still become hamburger and sold locally. But, but um, yeah, I, I would hope that would be something that would happen. What other... What are the other big issues cattlemen face here that we may not think of in the mainland? Well, you know, we're out here in the middle of the Pacific, and um, we're lucky we don't have, you know, winters. We don't have to put up hay. So that's the good news. But if we have a drought and it affects the whole island or the whole state, we just don't throw cattle in trucks and move them to another state. So... That's the part get, that can get real uh, dicey. And, uh, you know, we've had some pretty heavy droughts and lost, lost cattle and whatnot. But, um, you know, you can, you can bring containers of feed until you have no more money left and they're going to die, you know. So, you know, when you think about it, there's, not, there's no other real big agricultural crop other than grass that... Uh, you know, a ruminant animal can uh, sure. can survive on. So, talk about your ranch today. You have, you believe, the southernmost ranch in the U.S. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, um, my mom and dad uh, formed this ranch right about the same time that the I mentioned the Hine family sold Puala Ranch, the the Hine, the, the family ranch, and they bought uh, just a small little. I think it was. 50 acres at the start down South Point. Growing up, it was always my dad's ranch. You know, we never, I worked for the ranches and stuff, but it was always my dad and he had a partner and it was his, his deal. And we would go down and help brand and stuff, but it was never, we never got involved in it. But eventually they got a lease that was 15,000 acres and um, from a big landowner and it was perfect because it was surrounded, and we were surrounded by it. And we ended up um, running cattle on about 5,000 acres of that. The rest of it was lava. So we had a, f- our ranch was probably, you know, a little over five, between five and 6,000 acres. And we ran 1,200 mother cows. And um, when my dad passed away, I was still at Parker, and um, I, uh, I can run it from afar, but we still need to cut some cowboys and whatnot. And they said, Rob, whatever you think, you know, and so, which was good. And um, then Park Ranch, I, I was, this was in early 2000, they came up with an early retirement program. And, um, you know, I wasn't going to do it. And then I started thinking about it going, you know, I'm 55 years old. 
at the time or whatever I was. I was in my mid-50s. And I said, you know, maybe I should take advantage of this. And they were very generous with the package and everything. And um, so I took the early retirement. Then I took over managing the, my family's ranch. And, you know, so I, it's, I mean, after running 22,000 mother cows, yeah, I can, <laughs> 1,200 is like, you know, doing my sleep. <laughs> anyway. You can still come to the Parker Ranch headquarters in Waimea to see the history of the place. There are also other ranches on the islands that now offer horseback riding, chuck wagon cookouts, and other activities so visitors can experience more of the Paniolo culture. And perhaps you'll meet Robbie Hine, the man who once rode herd on the largest ranch in this state and one of the largest in the nation. Thanks for joining me on this journey into the life of the Paniolos, and I hope you'll take a trip with us again as we travel the countryside in Waimea, Hawaii. I'm Andrew McCray.